0: Welcome to Prestigious Minds, a podcast about the history of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am Jeremiah, joined with my co-host Rob, and we have a few announcements before we jump into this week's episode. First, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show and that you're having a wonderful week. Secondly, you can find us on social media at pmindspod, that is the letter P-M-I-N-D-S, P O D, And that will be our Twitter handle, our Instagram, and then on Facebook, you can find us at Prestigious Minds. I won't keep you any further from your reason why you're here, so let's we'll jump into it. Just a quick announcement. This October is going to be our first ever Scaretober event series. We are going to be telling fairy tales that would have been heard throughout the 19th century and before. These are not the Disney family fun versions. Oh no. These are the original chilling versions as told when they were first written down. So join us next month for the first ever Scaretober right here
1: on Prestigious Minds.
0: Good afternoon, Rob.
1: How's it going, Jeremiah?
0: It's a little, it's a little warm currently because the AC is out.
1: Yeah, it's a little toasty. Not too bad, though.
0: Could be worse. We could, could be, be sitting the, in
1: the, you know, in the uh, hellfires of uh, Louisiana or something like that.
0: Enough about our suffering. To bring us to our current point in the Vanderbilt saga.
1: Old Vandy.
0: Last episode, we talked primarily about the Gibbons versus Ogden Supreme Court case and what that meant for steamboat operations.
1: Old uh, Vanderbilt was pretty pretty sweet on Gibbons in the sense that he was real you know, loyal to him.
0: He wasn't as loyal with his son as we'll find out very shortly at the beginning of this next episode. Topics that we had talked about in the previous episode lightly, and this is the previous Vanderbilt episode, this kind of also goes with the steam episode. Is them racing steamboats, exploding boilers, being a little nefarious in their actions.
1: Yeah, you thought Talladega was interesting. Didn't steamboat racing? That was, uh, that was another thing. 12 hour long races.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Going at the ripe old speed of 12 knots. <laughs> yeah.
1: Let's go. Yeah, you can have a little brandy while you're racing. You know, it's pretty pretty involved at that point.
0: This is the third installment. Vanderbilt and I believe Rob and I may have an extended stay on Vanderbilt just because there's quite a bit to go over. We're slowly possibly reworking our episodes to be a little bit better always trying to improve for y'all. Starting out with this episode bringing us to our current point in time is William Gibbons now owns all of the interest for the union line including Like I mentioned before, Bill and A Hall. In 1828, he puts the entire interest of the Gibbons family in the the union line for sale for $400,000.
1: That sounds like a lot of money.
0: Yes, and this was also without notifying or consulting Vanderbilt, which I don't think Vanderbilt appreciated too much. He would have liked to have bought the interest because he was trying to go out on his own. Needless to say, Vanderbilt was not going to pay that for it.
1: Do you think it's because he found that the um, it wasn't worth that much, or he was just more of a shrewd merchant?
0: I believe it was a little bit of both. Given Vanderbilt's temperament, I would most great businessmen of his day. He's not going to overpay, and he's probably not going to pay you know MSRP. Right, for, for never
1: pay full price. But you think after this court case that Gibbons was like, "Hey, we're done. I'm done. I don't care anymore. Let's just sell it."
0: I believe Williams wasn't as interest interested. His son, obviously, Thomas was sick. I guess that's who you're referring to. I was thinking right. About
1: yeah, sorry, dear. Uh, Thomas Gibbons.
0: From what I've read, I kind of believe that that may have been part of the reason. I think the another thing was is he had so much property and other operations like he had several different plantations in like georgia and and i want to say maybe south carolina as well as land in like maryland so he had a lot of different assets he was also sick he was bedridden like the last year he couldn't really do much anyway i believe his son was not a big port like big part of the steamboat operation and in- another fish to pro exactly and, and it wasn't a large portion of his assets either it was mostly, it made money, but I think it was more of a folly of of Thomas to get involved and kind of, like, had that personal vendetta against yeah, Ogden. Yeah, yeah.
1: He had a score to settle with Ogden. So he was, I guess, when that was settled and he won, he was kind of like, well, eh, you know.
0: Didn't really, didn't really care one way or the other after that. And then, right. obviously, Thomas ended up dying and his son took over. Didn't have any interest in it. And so, after a little over a year let me back that up got ahead of myself a little bit (laughs) through all of this William putting it up for sale the the union line and whatnot Vanderbilt was not able to buy it his whole life savings at that point was only thirty thousand dollars not even ten percent of the asking price a valuable lesson he learned from the Gibbons was never be a minion always be an owner oh yeah
1: that entrepreneurial um, mindset way before like it got popular like it is now I think now it's
0: very much alive and also more of a a thing to be right. instead of a thing to do. I think the whole idea that sealed the fate of Vanderbilt's future was the idea of I can't control my business because I don't like he, he couldn't he couldn't compete on the scale of the union line yet because he he hadn't made enough to get to that point. But he couldn't control where he wanted to go. He was still an employee, essentially, and so he couldn't really have much say into it. So he was going to sell the union line, whether Vanderbilt wanted to buy it, not have it sold or whatever, he didn't care. After no buyers emerged for the union line, because William was asking way too much money, he pretty much had a fire sale and liquidated all the assets, of which... Vanderbilt bought two vessels. One of them was a smaller vessel that he renamed to Emerald, which was after a premier ship that burned, and I will go into that story later. The other one was the good old Bellina, which was one that Vanderbilt, I think, had a, had kind of cut his teeth on for Gibbons. These were the two vessels that he added to his newly commissioned citizen to form his dispatch line which was to run in opposition with the union line directly the rest of the union line assets was sold to the stevens family which was another entrepreneurial family that was trying to take advantage of the newly defunct monopoly operations
1: he was actually trying to oppose somebody like a company he kind of worked for it's pretty cool pretty interesting how that how that turned out
0: vanderbilt's position allowed him you know the cards played in his favor allowed him to buy a few more ships ships that he knew right like he knew what they were knew how they operated knew what condition they were in he got them at a bargain rate with his brand new ship that he had just had commissioned and so he had very low cost of operations
1: sure he took a lot of the crew too so they knew how it was how it was going to work too
0: you have Vanderbilt and the Stevens family. Immediately after this, Vanderbilt and the Stevens family had a price war. Or, let me restate that, a price war erupted.
1: A price war is not uncommon either. I mean, if you look at this, the steamboat saga of Vanderbilt, price wars happened all the time. You would have $10 fares, and it would go down to one. Or $3 fares, and it would go down to one.
0: It would go down less than that sometimes. Yeah.
1: I mean, even back in the day when they were using shillings, it would go down. It's crazy. I mean, good for the consumer, right? If you uh, if you didn't have a monopoly and you could you know, travel across the bay for a dollar,
0: pretty good. And like I said earlier, that was not a short trip.
1: No, 12 hours long. Quite a long time.
0: It's very interesting when you read about it because they would lower the rates to the point where they were losing money trying to run the other person out of business completely. They were, like, they were just
1: trying to bankrupt them.
0: Yeah, yeah, who has the deepest pockets, who has access to resources that the other person doesn't have. In this case, I believe Vanderbilt, like you said, they had lowered it down to about a dollar, and they ran for about a year or so, kind of going back and forth like this. I think Vanderbilt was able to still make money because of the money he saved from the purchase of those vessels, and the system was so efficient
1: also they they sold you know drinks and booze and stuff on the boat so he made money from that as well
0: yeah i think i think the fair covered the cost purely in fuel he was able to make his money up with food whereas the stevens family i do not believe that they could afford to do this for long and if we want to take a flashback to rockefeller rockefeller initially in his early days did this with oil refineries to buy them out vanderbilt however I guess you could say is one of those people trying to get bought out in a sense, which is what ended up happening. The Stevens family eventually bought out Vanderbilt's interest or his routes that he was running for a $10,000 payment and royalty payments on all future union line business. Wow. Within like two years of all the starting.
1: Wow. And uh, didn't he, did he sell, is this the point where he sold his boat for an exorbitant price too?
0: No, we're not there yet. <laughs> okay.
1: Little preview there.
0: Now we're at the point where he gets bought out. Now he still has ownership of, of his vessels. I'm gonna go into a very quick story about the Emerald that I said I was gonna get to. The Emerald was a premier ship that was commissioned by Gibbons to compete with a rival company's top ship. I don't remember the name of that ship, but it was a it was top of line, it was big and it was fast had all the amenities. It was not in service, but for a few months or several months when Vanderbilt was awoke very early in the morning to the Emerald being ablaze outside of uh, Bellina Hall at the dock. And it's a very sad story. So you have this beautiful brand-new steamboat, barely even run any routes, and all he could do by the time he got out there was let loose the forward lines and let the current carry it away from the dock so that the uh, trolling boat and whatnot didn't get destroyed or any parts of the dock and eventually ended up sunk in the middle of the bay. It was considered a total loss because it was uninsured.
1: Wow. And I believe that was the boat that he happened to keep all of his um, personal effects on as well. Like his clothes, not like his family heirlooms, but like his clothes, his uh, everyday stuff. And he kind of lived out of that boat, if I recall. Your family lives in Bologna Hall. Your kids, your wife, they upkeep it. But you live on this boat. All your stuff is on this boat. And it goes ablaze. Now, let's not talk about exactly why he lived on the boat and not in Bologna Hall. But what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do with all your stuff just set on fire? And now you have nothing. You can't even dress for the morning. I'm sure he was in his PJs. He probably <laughs> you
0: no. Know, he probably
1: looked like Scrooge
0: McDougal. Yeah, there.
1: yeah, like 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 a striped pajamas with his little nightcap little, and little and candle, a little, you know? Yeah, yeah. A little
0: candle and whatnot. Yeah, probably saying, "Bah humbug! I'm going to have to cut so many people's wages to pay for that." Oh, oh man, that's great. I believe this is a good moment to take a break. So, listeners, if you are driving do not pull over on the side of the road to take a break with us you probably want to get to your destination on time
1: <laughs> yeah we're, we're gonna you don't have to just just hang on for like uh, 30 seconds and we'll be back you know
0: so now a word from our premier recorded sponsors thank you for listening to this week's episode we hope you are enjoying it there is one little thing that we ask that you may do for us, and that is click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. We really appreciate it, and thank you so much. And we'll get back to it. And we're back for the second half of this episode. We're going to also bring you a short story over the General Jackson Steamboat, which was owned by... Cornelius Vanderbilt's younger brother, Jacob Hand Vanderbilt, along with his business partner, Stephen Van Wart. Van Wart's father had been a local Revolutionary War hero that captured the British by John Andre, which led to the foiled plot by Benedict Arnold to surrender West Point. It's pretty fascinating, a little snippet there, but the story goes on. Into Cornelius's little brother competing with, competing against rather, the Stevens family as well as Vanderbilt did. So we kind of talked about Vanderbilt's hand in this, and this is kind of a small factor of that. During operation, the General Jackson was competing heavily with the Stevens line of steamships. On June 7th, 1831, off of Grassy Point near Haverstraw, The boiler of the General Jackson had the safety valves closed and the the pressure gauges were ignored when the boiler exploded, killing more than 14 people.
1: It's kind of funny how that happens, you know. Yeah,
0: I mean, we, we obviously have mentioned this and talked about it in previous episodes, but this is a specific instance that I thought was very fascinating. Van Wart was on the ship, and he was actually the one captaining the ship he was killed along with several others and then a few other people were scalded that eventually died of their injuries a few days after this reporters when they were talking about this story speculated that the safety valves had been closed and that the boiler was overpressurized, leading to the explosion Jacob however was not on board he did not know exactly what happened but he praised the engineer on board calling him one of the finest and had been recommended personally by Cornelius himself and that the system was not overpressurized at all. Of course, that's not true, but he had ignorance in this, but he wanted to make sure that he maintained a good public image. What makes the General Jackson significant for this episode is local... Well, I am locally from Nashville, Tennessee, where there is a boat in operation called the General Jackson, which is a modern-day electric diesel paddle boat named in honor of this specific steamship. So I thought that was a cool story to share. I mean, tragic, you know, in what actually happened. The General Jackson, however, was able to be repaired and put back into service. All's well there. And moving on to our next conversation vanderbilt price wars with various steamboat operations the next one was the hudson river steamboat association which emerged shortly after the monopoly was abolished giving pretty stiff competition for vanderbilt i think they had 10 steamboats on the bay
1: yeah i mean if one thing vanderbilt hates it's competition (laughs) ironically even even though he says you know he's a he's a free market guy he likes competition he thinks uh you know at the time the the democrats are like competition competition you know he uh he likes the one being to reap the reward but he hates people competing against him
0: yeah i mean i can understand how he feels given that he drives his prices really low to try to get bought out or drive them out of business but that's kind of personal preference, I guess. Back then, it was kind of they played hard and fast for the rules. You know, it was either it was either you you, you roll the you rule the roost or you become you know kicked out.
1: <laughs> yeah, he was not going to be a hen. That's no. for sure. No, man, he, by hook or crook, he would just he would try to own everything he was in. Like, can you imagine trying to compete against a Vanderbilt type person today? Who just like, hey, buy me out or give up. Or let me buy you out, or give up.
0: I'm pretty sure that probably still happens today. I mean, I'm
1: sure. I'm, they, I mean, didn't didn't a few uh, didn't Elon do that with Twitter? He was like, "I'm going to buy you out, a hostile takeover." What do they call it? He just gave him price. They couldn't. They literally couldn't refuse.
0: That's actually very fascinating because that's uh, foreshadowing. I'm going to leave right. it at that. I'm going to leave it at that. I think at this point, Vanderbilt has learned the ropes of of business in the mid early 1800s at this point he's trying to solidify himself in his operation he's either going to get bought out and if you notice he when we were talking about stevens buying out his business it was not just a lump sum it was also royalty payments for the for the extent of the agreement so however long the agreement was he got rolled annual payments for as royalties from the business, which is pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, your residuals for a steamboat, a steamboat operation you're not having to do anything for. It's pretty
0: good. We had mentioned earlier his life saving was $30,000. From that one agreement, he would have had that probably within a few years.
1: Yeah, and I think that's like a million bucks today.
0: I guess he was considered wealthy for what it was, but he wasn't considered like one of the top businessmen yet. He was still fairly young. I mean, I say fairly young. I think he was in like his mid to late 20s. For that time period, it's pretty decent aged.
1: Yeah, he's doing pretty good.
0: It's wild because I'm sorry, you gonna say something?
1: No, I was gonna say I just I don't you know to imagine being thirty years old and having a million bucks in the bank. It's
0: pretty good, especially especially given his upbringing and not having hardly anything.
1: Yeah, I mean they I don't think they needed for anything, but they were like the modern family of the time. They they worked for a living, you know. They I guess his family didn't have need for anything. I'm sure they wanted for a lot, but And just imagine like 10 years later, you're, hey, I'm a millionaire.
0: And it did not stop there.
1: No, it didn't. It's something
0: that you see quite a bit is these younger entrepreneurial type people are all around that age. Like their early 20s and monumentally successful in their business ventures. Not to say they didn't fail, but they started so young that by the time they were... 26 years old, they had 10 years, or no, 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 they had like 15 years of work experience at that point. So it would make sense that they were successful business people at that point, especially the people that they were learning from. A little side note that I think is very fascinating thing about is typically we think about Vanderbilt. Obviously, Vanderbilt family is fairly well known because of the university that built more, a bunch of other houses or mansions that they have built. Which I think they eventually became known for. That was all his descendants. But Vanderbilt lived in a time when people like Andrew Jackson, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, I think even uh, Adams, like all these people are still alive. You know, yeah, that's that's crazy, isn't it? Thomas Jefferson, like he lived in a time where these people were alive. Like yeah. they, like the they fact, were, like
1: if not the founding fathers, fathers the sons of the founding fathers, kind of thing. Yeah, I
0: that's mean crazy. It's it's so wild because you think of Vanderbilt and I think most people I believe most people think of him more of a old man with all this money. I don't wanna spoil the ending for you, but he kind of dies before the cusp of the modern age starts really ramping up in the in the late eighteen hundreds. I yeah. think it's due to his family like just spending all of his money.
1: Yeah, I don't know if they they really work they definitely didn't work as hard as he did for their Their inheritance. I know that
0: you could partially blame him for not teaching his children, I don't think, or really being involved in their upbringing whatsoever.
1: Yeah, I don't think he was involved much at all in their upbringing. I think all his wife did all that,
0: and his wife was hardworking, though. So I don't want to say like his children didn't know that, but he wasn't a good example.
1: Yeah, no, at least I think that's a good point. Like maybe they didn't have to work as hard. I know he had a you know, he had. A son that died, at least, and one that was kind of—he was kind of afraid of hard work. Not, he just had a a shy and timid disposition, so Vanderbilt didn't really care that much about that. You know, not to say he didn't care about him, but he was kind of turned off by that.
0: Was that the one that ended up becoming an alcoholic? I don't know. And gambler.
1: I mean, your dad does not like you, and you can't really stand up for yourself. I'm sure you gotta find some vices, right?
0: I'm sure this will be in in a future episode talking about Vanderbilt. That will actually probably be in the next episode when we talk more about Vanderbilt's family. I believe it would be a good time to kind of talk about it. Maybe a little bit shorter of an episode, but we could pair it with something else. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. But bringing it back around to the Hudson River Steamboat Association. The price war continued raging on until they majority of the members of the association this was their only source of income from i guess their investments and so they were being bled dry and they could not continue doing this as where vanderbilt had multiple different lawns running in other places most of these people ended up having a vote and decided to buy vanderbilt off you and in doing so they eventually made a lump sum payment Okay, lump sum of a hundred thousand dollars. It's like a bonus, and an annual f- fee of five thousand dollars a year for each year of the agreement. What What is that in modern
1: dollars? I think that's like three, uh, four million dollars.
0: How much is is five thousand dollars a year? I mean, I'm sure that's enough to to live on back then. One hundred sixty thousand dollars. So, <laughs> so. So let's break this down, okay? Vanderbilt, at 35 years old, in his mid-30s, had secured a contract for a set number of years of $160,000 roughly of a salary. And this is before income taxes, so he got to see all of that money as well as the previous agreement of royalty payments that you got from the union line and the lump sum of $100,000, including whatever money. That's pretty good for 35 years old.
1: Yeah, that's that's really good.
0: Could you imagine? I mean, making $160,000 at 35 today is not a crazy sum. Like that's, I would right. say it's pretty Especially if you're married. Yeah, well, I would say even as an individual, that could be pretty reasonable if you work in like, Certain fields that typically, like if you work in the tech industry or you work in a specific line of engineering that pays more, right? Or I guess maybe you're a doctor, but most doctors don't even graduate till the 35, so they're not making anything. But
1: yeah, I mean, still, that's you're talking in the like five percentile of people, so yeah, that's pretty
0: good today.
1: And I, mean, then, I mean, think about it. That was like in the top, that was definitely in the top one percent.
0: We also have to assume his wife probably wasn't making much or anything at this point. So that is the entire family's income. And he ended up having, what, like 13 children?
1: Yeah, minus one, I think. Yeah.
0: So so we're also, like I said, we're going to talk more about that in the next episode. So it's a good to kind of hint in there at some of those numbers. But at this point, Vanderbilt arguably could have just continued running his multiple, like, ferry operations, steamboat. You know, ventures a little bit here and there. But Vanderbilt being the ambitious person and tactile business person that he was, he wasn't going to give up there.
1: Why would you? If you can make that much money at 35, what can you do at 65? He did it all before he was 65.
0: <laughs> we still haven't even got to the, the things that Vanderbilt's known for yet. This is just all the way up to his mid-30s. It's pretty wild. It, he He lived in that transitional period of... Colonial America, the Industrial Revolution, to the Industrial Revolution's child of like what they eventually ended up calling, at least I think they call it this today, is the market revolution. So the use of, you know, business entities having shares, the stock right. market, all that stuff started emerging closer to the end of Vanderbilt's life. And he definitely had plays in that.
1: I mean, like you said, they had corporations back then, but they were not what they are today, they're not regulated at all. Are hardly regulated and stuff, but
0: yeah, I th- most of all business commerce, all business commerce was made without like federal regulation. It was all state. It was all state run, and and maybe even local, local like counties and maybe cities. That would that would be a fascinating topic to to kind of dive into. So, any any yeah. Anyone wanna look into that, maybe comment on social media post you we post regularly, at least twice or three times a week on Instagram and Facebook. So if y'all have any insight to to that side of things, don't don't go comment. It'd be pretty cool. So Rob, you got any final final words for this episode? Saga
1: the episode three of Vanderbilt. Yeah. I mean as we've seen, Vanderbilt's kind of got a a knack for Building businesses and well, ending other people's businesses too.
0: Well, that's the thing, though, is he didn't end their business. Well, not yet, not yet, but in this specific context, I mean, he got bought out.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're going to, we're going to see how that, how all this turns out, but um, he's pretty smart cookie. I mean, someone who wasn't, you know, quote unquote, educated sure made a lot of educated people uh, think twice about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, he kind of took a pride in that as well, but I don't think that I would want to be as uneducated as Vanderbilt because he had horrible spelling, his punctuation was horrible, his grammar was
1: terrible. I bet his favorite book was, you know, um, A Pickle for the Knowing One.
0: Nah, we're not going to go into that yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> really? Y'all y'all go Google uh, was it a pickle from the knowing one? It is yeah. one of the wildest stories that maybe we should talk about here If sometime. you can
1: get past the first page, I applaud you.
0: It is horrendous. I have been there. Not not a pretty sight, but the dude the dude somehow made money.
1: Yeah, that would be a very interesting very interesting story to cover if we can ever get past the first couple of minutes cuz it's hilarious. And it's it's you wouldn't think it's true.
0: Yeah. Okay, I don't want to get too, off, too far off topic. I think this has been the third installment episode part, whatever you want to call it, of covering Vanderbilt on prestigious minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod. And go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening to Prestigious Minds.